Eve. Hi, welcome back to Demi Goddess, a podcast hosted by me, Demi Burnett. We have a great show for you today. Our guest, Jessica Baum, is a psychotherapist and coach that has a new book called Anxiously Attached, and it's all about how to become more secure in life and love. She's here to help us understand our attachment style, tools we can use when we are triggered in a relationship, how to heal, and more. I'm so super pumped to talk to Jessica today. I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, I need to rant a little bit about a show called Married at First Sight. And it's on topic for today because it's all about attachment styles. Okay, so lately I have been watching this show called Married at First Sight, which I had never heard of before. Um, And the whole concept sounds bizarre, but it's so interesting. And it's interesting because it's kind of like... For me, it reminds me of whenever I'm just dating someone at first and I like get really into dating them and I'm like super obsessed with them in the beginning, like the honeymoon phase, but they like actually are in their honeymoon. Uh, So it's pretty wild that they made that commitment. But it's interesting to watch because they have a whole team of professionals with them the whole time they're going through this. I don't know their titles, but they're professionals in the mental health industry and the um, marital counseling, marital counselors. So they take an approach of how can you be better for your partner? That's basically what they're trying to do for the other person is how can you be better for your partner? What are you doing wrong? How can you be better? And that's kind of the main focus. And it's interesting to me that there is no mention at all of attachment styles. And I don't know if you guys have heard of attachment styles, I recently just learned about them, and it's so interesting. There's three different type of attachment styles, and the reason why it's so interesting is because this is said to override any other uh, rules and theories we've had about relationships in the past. This is said to be the truest way to look at it through attachment styles. Everyone falls into a category of one. There's four. The fourth one is very rare. Uh, said to be like three to four percent of the population has it but let's go through the main three there's anxious attachment avoidant attachment secure attachment and then the fourth one is anxious avoidant or fearful avoidant attachment in my experience i know that i have had an anxious avoidant attachment style and i think it's very interesting because it kind of ties into my neurotype it ties into uh, my pathological demand avoidance my pda because It's been known that for me to like you, you got to ignore me for a week. Because if you like me, I don't like you. And if you don't like me, I like you. So I've always been trying to fight that and been like, that's so juvenile. That's so annoying. Why am I like that? Um, But I can tie it back to my neurotype of PDA. Because if you tell me uh, not to do something, counterintuitively, I would do the opposite. Like, uh... You know, it's always my autonomy. So if somebody likes me, I'm like, whoa, whoa, you're taking away from my independence, my freedom from external control. Ah, I'm in panic mode and I don't like that. But if you don't like me, now I feel like you think you're better than me. And now I feel like you have a leg up on me and my autonomy feels like I need to get back balanced and equal with you. So now I got to chase you. So it's interesting how I can tie my neurotype back into the anxious avoidant attachment style as well. 
I'm taking a time out from dating. <laughs> I'm currently um, trying to figure out how to be more secure. Um, I don't know if I could be. I don't know if attachment styles can change. I would love to ask our guests that today about if you're stuck with your attachment style or if you can become more secure, how that works. Um, but I want to tie back into the married at first sight thing because I really want to push these professionals to talk about attachment styles with these people. I wonder how much different it would be if they looked at that because they set up so many people with the anxious avoidant trap. You have an avoidant attachment style person and an anxious attachment style person and they set them up together and it's failure, it's chaos, it's toxicity every time. So if we addressed that and talked about that issue there, wonder what would happen. Wonder if they'd have a very good show anymore or if it would just be, you know, way too logical for them. So, yeah, that's my tip. Get therapists trained in attachment styles on the show. Then I guess you might not have a show. That's enough pie for one day. All right. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for being here today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get too into it, because I want to get so into it with you, I opened up on the episode already ranting about the show Married at First Sight. Um, I just started watching it. So I was ranting about how if any of these contestants knew about their attachment styles, the drama on the show might be over. <laughs> because once you're aware of the attachment styles, um, it kind of just changes every way that you view it. I mean, that's what happened for me. The way I view relationships changed once I was aware of attachment styles. So I wanted to ask you if you've ever seen the show, if you heard of it, what do you think about it? I have not seen that show, but I saw Love is Blind, um, an episode or two, and you can kind of see the attachment styles coming out there too. So oh, it's yeah. cool when you know the information and then you can kind of see the patterns and the dynamics play out. Yes. Um, can you explain in your expert opinion, because I explained it earlier, but <laughs> I probably butchered it. So in your expert opinion, what attachment styles are and how they relate to our love lives? Sure. I often say they're more important than horoscopes, but um, mm -hmm. an attachment style is an embedded pattern inside your system. And it's how you have learned to relate to others. And so in your early developmental years, you're really one energetic unit with your mother and or primary caregiver. And the way in which you are one unit and getting your needs met and learn to kind of call for help and learn to trust the attunement of your mother and this dance that happens um, develops a pattern within your nervous system and a strategy within your nervous system. And so you can adapt in many um, ways and there's four different categories, but they're really embedded patterns. There's uh, anxious, fearful, avoidant, avoidant, and secure. And a lot of the population is secure, but we can still have these patterns. So when you attach in your romantic life later on, a lot of the same strategies, believe it or not, that were embedded in your nervous system from early on get played out in your romantic life um, an example will be if you feel scared, you might run towards your partner, you might get louder, or if you feel scared, you might shrink and um, become more avoidant of what's going on inside of you. And so however you learn to adapt early on tends to play out again later in your romantic life. So it's pretty fascinating. 
That is so fascinating. I'm particularly interested in that um, because it's interesting to me. Um, trauma and with neurodivergence being part of the conversation too because trauma and neurodivergence go hand in hand. So it's uh, interesting for me to wonder is that the attachment style because of trauma, because of neurodivergence, or because of a combination of both? Yeah, I mean, so when you're looking at brain development and you're looking at anxious attachment in particular, um, the ability to self-regulate was never really cultivated. So when you talk about, I think you're talking about different ways in which brain works. And for someone with anxious attachment, they need a lot of what we call co-regulation. They need a lot of support to calm their system down because when they were born, when we're born, we're not born with a fully developed parasympathetic nervous system. We have only sympathetic in place. So our mom stands in as a self-soother. But if our mom was anxious or our mom was unavailable or going through something and didn't attune and couldn't soothe us, we didn't build the the pathways for self-regulation in the same capacity. So when we're anxious and you're upset, it's normal to try to seek um, soothing from outside of yourself because your own ability to regulate your emotions is limited. Um, the other way is with like an avoidant person, they didn't get a lot of co-regulation either, but they learned to kind of shut down their system and not reach. So yeah, brain development is part of attachment um, styles. And yeah, I mean, unfortunately, when you're really looking at it, when I think, you know, of, of the brain development, sometimes we think, well, we develop differently. And there are wonderful things about that. Like I'm dyslexic. And I, I look at that as a wonderful thing, because I've learned differently, and I am who I am. But when you're thinking about attachment and anxious attachment, not learning how to self regulate, it's actually causes a lot of harm, you know, it leads mm -hmm. to a lot of addictions with other people or with substances. And you don't even realize that you don't have the ability to self-soothe because you didn't build those, um, that neuroplasticity. You don't have that, um, you didn't have that wiring from early on. So it can really hurt you to not understand that that's not there. And what to do to become more secure is building that neuroplasticity and changing your brain develop now development now as an adult I don't know if that answers your question but um I don't know if it does either but I don't remember what my question was because that was so interesting and I just was following you and I was loving every bit of that um it makes so much sense to me and um yeah I just I could see myself and what you were saying and it makes sense with the anxious attachment style where it gets interesting even more interesting so the anxious attachment style, I see it a lot. We see it a lot on TV shows and stuff. Mm -hmm. What about anxious avoidant or fearful avoidant? Um, that's kind of where I fall because I under it makes sense to me that whenever um, I am just now learning how to regulate, how to self-regulate. I didn't know that, I, like you were saying, I didn't know that I w wasn't self-soothing or that I was shutting down systems or, you know, I was uh, dragging people down, forcing people to co-regulate with me. That's something that I've noticed in my past I've done to people is I have kind of forced friends like, hey, help me through this right now. Ah! And um, that's you're right. Having without the lack or with the lack of awareness of that damaging, harmful to me and to others. So then 
people who can relate to that, but then the people who also are like, well, I also am avoidant. I also get scared of people when they're clingy. I know that I don't like whenever people like me too much or give me my space. How, that's the one that's the least talked about. How can that one, how does that make sense? You know, so there's a couple of ways we could approach this, but we can have more than one pattern embedded inside of us. For example, my mom was anxious and my dad was avoidant. He was really not there. So I have avoidant protectors. It sounds like you're predominantly anxious, but when things get really hard, you know, I'm, you might I'm have. Pre- I'm actually predominantly avoidant. Um, okay, I, pro- I like to talk about the anxious side the most because it's the one um, where I feel the most out of control and I feel the most upset. So I want to talk about that one to fix that one the most. The avoidant one I'm in such control of and I'm just like, I'm, I doesn't, uh, I avoid it. So it doesn't bother me as much as the anxious one does. And you're conscious of the avoidance. Um, yes, I would say that I'm not dating right now because I know that I'm not ready and I know that I'm a toxic person to date after like Aww. realizing all of this awareness. It's not like a, a bad thing on my end. It's, it's like, uh, I, you know, I was going through life without, um, with an undiagnosed disability. Like my brain works differently. I've had a lot of trauma done to my brain, hurt people, hurt people. And I know yeah. that, um, if someone doesn't understand my mind and like what's going on in my brain and is willing to work with that, I don't. One million percent trust myself to date someone, and like you know, I just I don't yet. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to get at like a hundred percent with me, and I'm mm-hmm. close. I'm I'm closer than I've ever been to being like a hundred percent with myself, but not there yet. So t- being mature about it, but I am very aware of my avoidance side. Whenever I was dating, and it's, uh, as it's they called me heartbreak demi. In high school because of it. Because right. I had a two-week right. rule. I'd date you. I'd be head over heels for you for two weeks. And then after that, I did not want to see you. Because right. I was so I was so anxious that I was avoidant. Because right. I was just, and, yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm hearing you. And, and it's such beautiful insight that you have on yourself. And I hope a lot of compassion because, yeah, and I talk yeah. about this in my book, we all adapted the best way we could. Exactly. I that people listening have compassion for yourselves. I'm not um, self loathing at all anymore about it, because it's not my fault. And it's no one's fault. We're products of our environment. If we didn't know better now that we know better, that's what matters. Yeah. And you know, and anxious, if you have that anxious side, and you need to co regulate, that makes perfect sense. And finding healthy people to co regulate with to help you build the neuroplasticity. But I have avoidant protectors too. And so I think we can embed more than one pattern. And at the end of it, we're looking at fear of intimacy and fear of abandonment. So when I get too close, I'm, I'm fearful of being vulnerable and I'm fearful of the intimacy and what might come up inside of me when I'm not close enough. I'm fearful of the avoidant and my avoidant, um, I'm fearful of abandonment. So I might be hypervigilant to how I might be abandoned. So I'm not really comfortable. And you're, you're talking about a little bit more of a disorganized feeling. I'm not comfortable too close and I'm not too comfortable too far away. So how do I keep that person in a space that's where I can stay calm inside. Right. And so, you know, it healing happens in relationships. So even though you don't want to date right now, it's about forming healthy relationships with people who can be with these different parts of you and help you understand them and what's coming up for you around the experiences, the internal experiences and holding those experiences in the safety of someone else's nervous system. And it really does come down to nervous systems responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? Those you are my break down? love language right there. I am obsessed with the nervous system. 
Yeah. Yeah. And my book explains a lot of the nervous system because attachment really is embedded patterns in your nervous system and your automatic nervous system, which really is brilliant. And you can't take any responsibility for that because all of that wiring is automatic and it's your body trying to keep you safe. Literally, your system is trying to keep you safe in the best way it knows how. The problem is, is it's sometimes getting a signal that there's danger when there's not really danger. And so it can stop us from forming intimacy just because pain came up or fear came up and then we're not really aware of what's really coming up so we can push the person away. Or um, maybe we're avoiding abandonment so we can come off kind of controlling and try to keep that person close and have some more codependence traits. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to avoid pain and understanding what the unconscious pain is or the core wounds and being with those sensations as they come up with safe people is how, what leads to integration and forming the pathways for earned security, which is where we want to get to. So you have to have healthy relationships and it doesn't have to be romantic relationships. They have to be healthy, non-judgmental, warm, secure people in your life to help you understand what's going on in your world. And in those interactions of trust, learning to retrust people, you start to build that neuro that, that neurodevelopment that you're, you're looking for. But I think you're really common. Like I post on TikTok sometimes and other social media and people are like, I have both. And so many people and myself too, I have some avoidant protectors, even though I'm predominantly anxious. We do, if we're caught in a situation that's really painful and our anxious side wants to go and try to fix it. And we try to get in contact and try to get in contact. We try to get in contact and that doesn't work. We might run in the other direction. Because we always want to get out of the pain. We always want to kind of find a place to to feel calm. And so our system is trying to do something Mm -hmm. to help us to avoid some of that deeper pain, if that makes sense. It does. Makes total sense to me. You're talking about all this stuff that I've been reading about, but not in relationships in regards to my um, neurotype and my brain wiring. It's very closely related to one of Uh, a person that's been through a lot of trauma, but it has, I also have the trauma with it. So um, it's, I would love to tell you about it at another time because that's like a whole other conversation. But it's very interesting because the awareness of it for me changed the way I responded to the world and everyone else immediately. It was immediate differences. So do you think that on these shows like Love is Blind, like Married at First Sight, if people are made aware of these attachment styles, what do you think would happen? Like if you were, say you were there and you were telling people about, you know, their attachment styles during the show, what do you think that would look like? I'm just so curious. I feel like it would be a whole different show. Well, I think that um, it would be a whole different show and the dating world would change if people were more interested in people's attachment styles than people's horoscopes. I think what's interesting is avoiding people tend to be attracted to anxious people. And so there's a lot of chemistry in the opposite pairing. And those tend to have a lot of um, heightened intensity in the beginning, which can feel like love, but really might be, have some undercurrents of, I don't want, I use the word lightly, but trauma bonding. Um, Yes, but there's a lot more trauma in the world than like, you know, we're ready to admit. There's a lot. So it's, we're traumatizing each other all the time. I think, yeah. And I think we use the word trauma and people might be listening and they're like, I didn't go through trauma. The truth is in your early years, when you didn't really have a a big perspective, everything was big. So um, 
it's hard, you know, things impacted you in it a way that It was trauma when you were born and you got removed from your mother instead of given to your mother. That was trauma. Yes. Yes. There, that is trauma. And if like my mom was going through postpartum depression and a divorce at the time when I was an infant, so she couldn't help it, but her system was locked in different nervous system, like in a dorsal shutdown or a sympathetic. So yeah. her system is also what's building my system. So that's how intergenerational things get passed down. So it's no one's fault here, but starting yes. to understand it, you know, I don't blame my parents. They were doing the best they can. That's but the beauty it, of it impacted it. me. Like the, um, the beauty of understanding yourself, understanding your attachment style, understanding how your brain is working is that consequently you begin to understand the others around you and why they did what they did. And the anger, you overcome the anger because you don't have anything to be mad about when you realize that everyone's in survival mode. Everyone was doing their best and no one was intentionally trying to hurt you growing up. Like they weren't trying to fail you. They weren't trying to make you sad or miserable or neglect you. They life is so hard and difficult and the circumstances for everyone change. So, uh, I think that's yeah. so cool that we, that you are talking about my thoughts, you know, it validates yeah. me. And I can actually like feel you like in a sense, like how much you have been through and, and this process for you. And I, 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 life is hard and trying to understand the sensations that are going on in our body is really complicated. And that's when I was 20, I struggled with a lot of that. And, and, that's why I wrote this. And that's why I like buried myself in research because it, getting the information is half of it. Cause then you have to, what you do with it. And I hear you saying, I formed a lot of compassion for those around me. And I think you did that because you started to form more compassion for your own internal experiences because they started to make sense. And when you can shift your relationship to your own internal experiences and make sense of them and change that narrative, you start to understand other people's behaviors a little bit differently as well. And so it is, it is life is hard and you don't know from the outside what other people are experiencing inside or what's going on inside their body. We don't advertise this, nor should we always be advertising this, but a lot more people are being upset that their partner didn't text them back and feeling their stomach go crazy or mm -hmm. avoiding mm -hmm. someone they love because they're frozen inside. You know, they're not talking about these responses enough and normalizing them and helping get the right information out there so that you don't feel crazy. You don't feel like you're going insane. Yes. And that is so important. And that's why I love that um, you have a book. That's something that, you know, like I would love to do one day, too, is because what happens with us with us is that um, we go through these experiences in life that are hard and we are so hurt. So we lock ourselves up and are finding answers. We do research. Like I lock myself up in my house and do all this research because I want to know the answers. I need to know all of this stuff um, to make sense of it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And um, we and then after we find out all the information, what you're saying is, what do you do with it? What do we want to do with it? We want to give it to everyone. So that way we say, hey, we were looking for all of this information. Here's one place where I can give it to you all. Here's a book. Here's a uh -huh. book of where I went and searched because nobody else just had a place with all of this information for me. I compiled it all together for you guys. And this is how I want to help you have a better life. I think that's so amazing. Definitely. And yeah, I went through so much depression and anxiety in my early twenties. And I was like, what is going on inside my body? And yes. there's so many abandonment things and things of that nature. And I became a couples counselor and I started to do my own work. And I'm like, 
uh, yeah, codependency is a word, but no one was really explaining that a lot of this is attachment, like deep attachment issues. You know, even addiction comes down to it, deep attachment issues. So once I really, really understood that and believe me, it's taken time, then yeah, I want to share it. And doing the work means being with these things in a new way as they show up. You know, it's not all love and light. It's it's hard to be with the sensations in your body and make sense of them, but it's so much easier when you have an understanding of actually what's going on and you can start to build that. Um, it's a new relationship to them because now you're like, okay, this is why I am responding this way, or this is why these behaviors are coming out. I don't have to live in the shame of the behaviors anymore. It's making yes. sense. The shame of the behaviors. Uh, I I always will warn people that I am crazy as in um, not anymore. Uh, but whenever I was drinking and stuff and dating, um, whenever I lost control of a situation, like just I mean, I become the meanest person ever, the meanest mm-hmm. and craziest because I'm usually right about whatever it is that I've like suspected or whatever the reason I'm set off. But it's just the way that I go about it is like I have to. Um, I just go about it so, so wrong. I, I've gone about it so wrong in the past. Um, but I, I don't know why I'm over here confessing. <laughs> I'm well, like, oh no, my exes are probably getting smug right now. Let it, let the record show that they are the ones. It is them. I didn't do anything ever. No, I'm just kidding. But how can there's an anxious avoidant trap? I always read about the anxious avoidant trap Uh, for the listeners. And just because I love hearing you talk, you make so much sense. Can you explain the anxious avoidant trap? You touch on it just a little bit. But how with the awareness still. So if I were to try to date now and I have all this awareness, would I still fall? Would would I be able to overcome the feeling of knowing like, oh, I'm just feeling anxious because I know of this attachment style I have. So I don't I can calm myself down and I don't have to have these severe reactions. I don't have to be so mean because I am aware of what's happening or will my nervous system just uh, will it um, override my feeling of logic because it override it for the need to feel safe. Your nervous system will still respond, unfortunately. And, um, (laughs) however, however, your awareness around yourself in the response will change. So you'll build what we call like a window of tolerance. So yes, I I talk about that in my everyday behavior all the time. My window of tolerance, my, um, my profile of autism, it's all about, um, my number one thing that I need is autonomy. If it's threatened, my nervous system is activated. So with every little tiny thing that's imposed demands internal, it looks a lot like trauma. So there's lots of trauma involved too. Uh, in the there's a there's a lot more to it I could tell you about. But um, as you were so saying. that yeah that's interesting. So yeah, that would be a hallmark of avoidant because there um, for whatever reason two things can happen. Like you can feel like maybe your mother or primary caregiver just smothered you, you know, and you didn't have a strong sense of self or they didn't co-regulate with you a lot, but either way you feel threatened when someone gets too close that they might consume you, that they might take over. Right. And so it can be really scary. It's probably it in the initial phase to my stomach. Like it makes me like 
but I'm I've always been aware of the avoidant thing. Like I didn't call it avoidant. I um I didn't know what it was, and so it was like a get over it, Demi. You are a bad person for that, and you need to get over it. And now I have a completely different look on myself with it. I'm like, oh well, if I I, I could just explain to the person, hey, I simply feel like you're threatening my uh, and I feel like a lot of people could relate to this. My sense of self, my individuality like you're threatening that I just need a little bit of space can you just like go do one of your own hobbies or something for a second get away from me and like come come back and I'll come back tomorrow and it'll be completely different and if people could understand that it really is but people take that as a huge insult and then that's what contributes to the anxious and avoidant trap is the avoidant person you're making me feel bad now I'm avoiding you 10 times more for even longer and it's all subconscious Oh, yes. And you're not alone. I mean, on both sides is in pain and there's a lot of anxiety on both sides. And the thing is, is if you partner with with someone who's more anxious, you're going to have to say, I need you to take space right now, but you're really important to me. This is like me needing to regulate a really right now. And if they can and they have the resources and know that it's not personal, it's your system is feeling threatened at that moment and you need the space to kind of. How would one convince someone it's not personal? Because it's hard to believe, especially with such intense emotions involved. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like when someone feels threatening for you, you're like, you know, the the response is like back up, right? And so kind of being really aware of that, maybe having a... um kind of a, some, the way you ask for it and having conversations, this is going to come up before it comes up. I tend to get overwhelmed when I get too close. I'm going to have to ask you for space and it doesn't mean I don't like you. And it doesn't mean I don't care for you. And a secure person, a more secure person is going to have an easier time giving you that space. A more anxious person might get anxious by that request. So it depends on who you partner with and how you ask for the space and then the coming back after the space. So an anxious person might feel like, oh, you don't like them. And if they're insecure, they'll pour gasoline on that and then they'll get worked up and then you'll get worked up. And that's how we get caught in this dynamic. So how do you prove that? Well, I mean, I talk about it a lot in my book, but we're talking nervous systems here two nervous systems reading. So you could get anxious and your nervous system could go into fight and due to neuroception. And I can talk about that if you want another person, you might even be saying, I need space right now, but your system is freaked out. Your nervous system signaling to somebody else's nervous system that it's not safe and their system automatically goes into a response too because we're connected. It's so funny because while it's happening, I'm like, I know how you feel right now. And it's not, I don't want you to feel that way. I really don't mean that, whatever you're feeling. But it's because I know that their nervous system is activated. I just didn't have the words for the vocabulary because I didn't. uh, It's so interesting. I've learned so much about all of these like feelings and all this stuff going on inside of me. Uh, all has names and labels and they're all systems and it's so cool. And I'm all, and now I'm like, guys, I think I just felt the dopamine leave my brain. <laughs> like it's yeah. ah, so cool. So um, the anxious avoidant trap. So you're saying that you, you're talking about the secure one and how uh, someone who's secure won't do these things. So if people have anxious, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, also like even if you partner with someone who isn't, secure for you. I mean, cause our stuff is going to come up. Your window of tolerance might change from, I need space. This is too welling to like, I really need space. I really care about you. This, you know, like and, the tone. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're, that's you building the tolerance. To- and it changes. And I don't know if that's like, just like an autistic thing, but it changes every day, depending on how many demands I have, um, 
from other people, from myself, depending on if how well set up I am for the day to deal with these demands. Because no matter what the demand, it's external control threatens my autonomy. So every single one of them, it gives it activates my nervous system. So we have to minimize activating my nervous system. Uh, that's like me and my assistants. That's what we do. They co-regulate with me. It's very yeah. nice. No, that's good. And it sounds like you have a lot of support and you can get overwhelmed fairly easy. And there are days when I am more resourced than others. And so it, sometimes it's not about the cue inner or outer cue can be big, or I could have more stress on my plate and the cue could be small and I'm responding in a big way. There's a lot of factors here, but when you work on building um, tolerance and expanding your window of tolerance and being with these uncomfortable sensations, the, the, the experience does change. It will still vary, but your ability to tolerate it gets larger and larger and larger. And then your ability to ask for what you need gets easier and easier and easier. So doing the work is a progression. And I hear that you're kind of in the middle of it and you have a lot of people to help you kind of manage your stress levels. Yeah. Um, and to people that are listening, like it's sounds like I have a lot of people to help me, which I do, but um, it took me taking a lot of the people that were in my life and getting them out of my life because they weren't going to help me. And um, I think it's important to remember that you, if people aren't helping you, that doesn't mean you change you. That means that you go find people who will help you. It doesn't mean that you stop asking for help. It doesn't mean that you minimize your needs. It means that you go find people that will help you. And unfortunately right now in our country, it's difficult to get help for mental health in this, um, in the mental health care system. It's expensive. It's inaccessible to a lot of people but uh, just keep reaching out to people online and you can find a lot of people who will have so much information to help you they may not be professionals but a lot of people have done their research and there's a lot of help online I found a lot of help just through other people's experiences absolutely and the truth is you don't need a therapist and you don't need to be fixed you need warm consistent non-judgmental people to hold space for you. And we need more and more and more of that. And it might talk about it again in my book. It's not always about going to therapy, but you can't look to be fixed. You, what we need to do is more holding and more being present with each other and allowing these things to surface safely and not medicating them by fixing them or running away from them, but being with more of ourselves and understanding, you know, yeah, yeah. you can have a good friend and it's, it's not about venting and pouring gasoline on the problem. It's just about, can you just be with me and validate me or just hold the space or just listen to me? You don't have to fix me. You don't have to problem solve this. I just need to know that you're there, you know, and that can build secure attachment. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. It builds like trust um, in someone. Yeah, I love that. There's such like a there's such a stigma on the anxious attachment. It's like ew, clingy. It's like no one wants to be clingy. Ew. Is there a way? Because I, it breaks my heart, you know, because it's <laughs> it's just judgment, and most of the time it's because it's women targeted at women. But how can we change that? Like, make it sound good. Is there any way that we can make it sound good so that way women, uh, well, anyone who has an anxious attachment style, not just women, um, is more open to talking about it, admitting it? Because if you tell someone, hey, you're clingy, it's like you might as well tell them that they're creepy. Like, it's pretty rude. (laughs) 
Yeah, no. And there, I hate when people say needy and clingy and I get it like codependent even has shame to it. Again, this kind of goes back to the same thing. Like they don't maybe know how to self-regulate. So they're over um, trying and they're over trying to connect and anxious people have a need for a little bit more connection and uh, reassurance. But anxious people are probably like one of the most sensitive people out there where well, that can be a plus or a negative. And they have they have a tremendous ability for empathy and they actually are wonderful co-regulators. So when they learn to work with their system, they make really great partners. So there's a lot of hope. And they're also the one. Well, I don't say the one category, but they are most likely to go out and get the help. They want to work on yes. themselves and. Yes. That's um, my anxious side to me. You're talking to my anxious side now. Yeah, we were just talking about my avoidance side. Now this is like, yes, because I am so good at co-regulating for people because I know what they're feeling. Because I'm like, I've been there. I know what they need. Right. And, and I just so when you're not activated, you're able to show up for other people, mm-hmm. you know, really, really well. And that's that's such a beautiful gift so that you do have both, you know, right in right in there. So that's that's really cool. Um, yeah. So they're really good co-regulators and they're really good at sensing what other people need. Usually they don't have a total awareness around what they need. Like so yes. they disconnected yes. and self-abandoned in I'm a way that a they friend. need to get. Yeah. And it's, they need to get in touch with that. How can and you so, word that to a friend, though, without it sounding like, hey, you need your you, you need help regulating yourself? Like, how could I how could I tell my friend, hey, in a very loving way, you have anxious attachment style. And I think that's why you're struggling in all your relationships. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so they need help regulating and then finding safe people to start that healthy co-regulation with will help them learn how to have healthy self-regulation. We don't. So it's Learn not how telling to them it's being without a proper co-regulation. I'm so sorry I interrupted you, but um, yeah. I said that it's like being that example for them. Instead of telling them that they need this, it's actually like being a co-regulator, a good friend for them, being someone who isn't judging them and a less talking more actions for them. Yeah. And if you're like, well, no, I can't. They're too much for me. That's your avoidant self showing up like their anxiety is kind of coming at you a little bit too much. So you can't hold the space for them. So then telling them, I can't hold this space for you, but I care about you so much. And I wish that I could, you know what I mean? But I'm not available for one reason or not. And so it's being really honest about where your edges are. I have one really good friend who's very, very anxious. And I, I struggle because she knows that she makes me anxious and I'm an anxious attachment. So I try to build a lot of empathy for her, but I can never seem to calm her down enough, you know? And so I have so much compassion for her and I only have so much bandwidth too, you know what I mean? So anxious people, if you're listening, spreading this healthy interdependency out on several people who can help you regulate your system till you build the capacity to regulate your own system will be really helpful. And when someone isn't available, they might just not have the capacity in that moment. doesn't mean that they don't care about you. And I think that's really, really important because it can be really scary to need that support and that, you know, and that's the anxious avoidant dance because that anxious person is relying just on one person to regulate Uh. them rather than having a therapist or a coach or several friends to help calm them. They want their romantic partner always to be that calming force. That makes sense. That makes total sense. It's that they rely on them to co-regulate them. And the avoidant person is, does not want to do that uh, because I guess at their core, they're anxious about it and, and their action is just avoidant. Well, and you have to remember when you're coming at someone 
um, and you're needing that co-regulation, you're not really connecting. That's not really a place of connection. You're needing someone to help you calm you down. So there's not a lot of connection. There's more of just a calming that's needed. So just owning that a little bit, like I'm not looking to connect with my partner. I really need them to help calm me down. And if your system's so wound up, you might unconsciously be setting their system off. So it takes the blame out when you start to yes. understand the nervous system. Yes. And the ner- yes, that is a beautiful way to put that. I need mean, put that in my bio, my Instagram bio, because <laughs> that is exactly what I'm trying to say is that it takes the blame out when you're yeah. looking at the nervous system, because everyone is just it's not my fault. Like they think that I'm trying to blame them for something that's wrong with the world or wrong with my life. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, I understand, guys. I have compassion for everyone. But that also means myself. So that means that I'm not going to allow you to try, you know, to make me feel guilty for something that I'm not doing, whatever, X, Y, Z. You know, that's a whole other story. That's very interesting about the anxious attachment. So anxious attachment I see anxious attachment trap, anxious avoidant traps everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. But the the end goal is to be secure. Can is is it like everyone should be trying to get be secure or is it that we should be owning our attachments and uh, knowing, hey, I have an anxious attachment, so like you have to work with me, uh you have an avoidant attachment, I have to work with you. We got that. Or is it we have I have an anxious attachment. I need to work on changing it to secure. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I think that you need to know what your patterns are so that you know what your needs are and so that you can uh, address them. And I think doing the work is going to make you move to earn security. Um, And sometimes if you're with someone who's more avoidant, it's not a bad thing, but if you can start to understand what is it that they're bringing up inside of me and not project it completely onto them and be with that pain and link it back, that's where you start to get out of these loops because they're unconscious, like they're unconscious loops are not fully conscious until you integrate them into like, oh, wow, this pain actually existed before. And now I'm projecting all my abandonment or I'm projecting all of my not feeling special onto someone or all these projections that we put on people. They actually maybe are doing something in the here and now, but they live deeply inside of us. So once we can start to understand, wow, this is hitting a button and it's really implicit memory or it's old memory or it's in my body, then we know it's more trauma-based. Then we can learn to say, okay, what are they bringing up for me to heal versus they're doing this to me, mm-hmm. right? And you can choose to stay in the dyna- dynamic or not. What but are a lot they of... bringing up for me to heal? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I love that. Yeah. And it's sometimes the person bringing it up isn't the person who's going to heal it. No, but, but it's making you aware of it. Like you're saying, they're bringing it up. It's like uh, Oprah, she said, instead of what's wrong with them, what happened or what's wrong with you, what happened to you? Like shifting that mindset of what's uh-huh. wrong with you to what happened to you. Yeah. Because, uh, or like what's triggering you to what's being awakened inside of you. Wow. 
Cause then you can hold it and you can start to see it, that it's a younger part of you. It's trauma. It needs to be tended yeah. to versus the shame around. I got triggered. I got so, triggered. Yeah. That's interesting. So taking these triggers or whatever, seeing them as awakenings and an opportunity to heal. And that's mm-hmm. where we begin. We got to get down conscious. To yeah. You have to be willing to not blame the other person and say, okay, this lives inside of me too. What's this about? Yeah. And also not blame yourself, like finding a, a way to feel bad for yourself. Like understand that, Hey, I'm just a human who doesn't know what the F I'm doing just as much as anyone else does. I'm trying my best just as much as anyone else. I'm not secretly super bad. Like, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if everyone experiences this, but um, I am kind of the face of the women uh, that have autism that struggle to be believed. So with that is uh, a lot of proving myself, you know, in, in every aspect of my life, though. And it's just been so frustrating. Yeah, no, I I can imagine I that it that that's that's a core wound if I never am proving myself and I always have to feel like I have to work harder or no one's really believing me or maybe even no one's really seeing me or Mm -hmm. sensing into me. And, you know, that can happen. Then it can show up everywhere. And I think knowing, I mean, I talk about this in chapter two, like knowing where your core, what your core wounds are and where they live in your body, because they actually are stored in the body, not in the brain. The brain just makes up a narrative around them. Like, yeah, you the know, brain's I'm, crazy, man. The brain makes up all kinds of narratives. All, it's so yeah. funny, too, watching people come up with, like, excuses. I'm like, oh, you did that actually because your brain was blah, blah. And they'll come up with a million excuses. I'm like, you can say it however you want. The same action occurred. Like, it's the same thing. Your brain's just trying to get as creative as possible. It's fine. But um, as you were, uh, what were you just saying? No, no, that that's, that it, it's <laughs> a great point. Like, so you might feel a sensation of, what you said, I have to prove myself or I'm not enough, right? It's a feeling. It's a felt sense that happens in your body first. And 80% of the information then goes up to your brain. And then your brain makes up a story about that feeling, but the felt sense of not being good enough or having to prove myself existed way before the narrative around it. So it's, we want to address the sensations and start to understand where they came from and realize that a lot of times we're making up narratives that aren't accurate to the origin of the sensation. And we in the origin, we got to get down to the nervous system. Yes, I yes. love the nervous system. It's so fascinating. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow, this went just as great as I thought it was going to go. <laughs> I knew I was going to be really excited and interested, but wow, I did not know you were going to be bringing all the nervous system into this. I love that. The nervous system, and I think another piece, you know, for anxious people and avoidance, like the lost parts of themselves, like what did I have to shut down in order to survive, you know, and lock up and who couldn't I be? And how can I start to be more and more of myself, all of myself, the parts that were seen not good, the parts that were seen good. It's about it. It's about a full acceptance there. And like, I love this. You said it a couple of times. It's like forming this compassion. And I, the way in which you said it makes me feel like you really get it. Cause I think when you have compassion for yourself, it's like you become more of an observer of yourself. And then you can, it's that space of the observer mind to be like, you're just human and everybody reacts badly sometimes. And let's start to unpack this versus just being in the sensation and the reaction. So there's a, there's space, there's growth when you can kind of start to look at yourself and, and see with compassion why some of these behaviors are there or why some of these sensations are there. And when that shift happens, it's pretty profound in terms of how you treat yourself and how you start to treat others. 
it's so interesting you called it the observer because um, I always say zoom out. I'm like, you need to like I zoom out of the situation and I'm like, OK, wait, what's going on here? Really zoom out and look at it that way. And it, it consequently helps me to be less afraid of people. If I understand what's going on in people in my mind, I can understand other people's minds. So now whenever like a man is getting an attitude with me, like, you know, at the grocery store or something, I don't feel afraid for my life. I understand that this person is just physically bigger than me. That's why it's setting off my nervous system and I'm in fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And I can Usually I would have to co-regulate. I can kind of self-regulate now and understand if I zoom out and just see he's just like me. He's just experiencing like, you know, he's having this feeling that I've had before, blah, blah, blah. And he's just bigger. So it looks scarier. But I have nothing to be afraid of. And I can handle this. And I can talk my way out of it. You know, schmooze my way out of it. But it's uh, been life changing for me to zoom out. I love that you say that. I I talk about that all the time. I'm really? like, if you can be the observer and zoom out and you see these two people's nervous systems just kind of hurting each other, you, you're like, oh, wow, this is what's really going on here. And, yes. you know, when you say this bigger man, it's like the size of a person, the tone of their voice. There are all these little cues that can set us off that we're unaware of. And, and it makes make you us... think that you're in so much danger. And so I get so afraid. I'm like, oh, they're so mean and scary and blah, blah. And then I zoom out and I say, okay, let's take them out of the argument and let's put in a person smaller than me where they were. Now I am the scary one. Now I am the one who's traumatizing that person because they're smaller than me because I'm still talking the same way I was talking to the bigger person, but I'm talking to the smaller person now. So it makes me see that they are, um, we're similar and they are not like some monster traumatizing me. They're just bigger. The tone of voice, it's just setting off survival skills. It's setting off my nervous system of fight or flight. And um, yeah, it's just interesting. It's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, one of your inner cues is, or outer cues is someone bigger who's got a mean tone. And that probably has an origin if you trace it back, you know what I mean? Because it's terrifying when we're babies or we're young children and someone has a tone and they're they are, our, our parents are a lot bigger than us, you know? So we internalize those experiences. And, and, and they then, don't know, but the poor parent has no idea because they didn't have the resources we have now to be aware right. of this kind of stuff. Absolutely. So they had no idea that their kid was terrified of them. Absolutely. They, and they could have been terrified in that moment. None of this is really done exactly. consciously. And none of this is about blaming our parents. And it's, it's such an important, I think part of the work is being compassionate and feeling bad for yourself. And I don't mean that in a place, place of pity, but a place of like, Oh, I agree you with didn't. you. I agree with you. It's like, uh, because I used to say like, Oh, I want pity. I want pity so bad, but I didn't realize what I, what I really needed was I needed, um, compassion and understanding for myself. I need a pity. I need to pity myself, me. Well, yeah. And sometimes it, you could reframe it like I needed to grieve what I didn't get and feel yeah. for that validation as well yeah. For, yeah. for the fact that I wish that I was like mistreated or that it wasn't uh, not that I was mistreated because there's no fault there. It's just that uh, it's um, validation that, yeah, well, of course you would feel lost and sad and misunderstood and all of these things. Of course You've you done will. done your work. You've definitely done your work. And you know what I Thank tell you. people? <laughs> Parents do the best they can. Their intentions are usually really good, but they can still impact us. 
So it's looking at the impact in a new way. And it sounds yeah. like you've done a tremendous amount of work. You know, it's on- crazy. It's like, it's not, I don't, I don't even like, it, it is work, but I've just done it all on my own, just researching and digging into my brain. It's all inside of us. We all know it already. Follow the intuition, follow those thoughts that are like, hey, maybe this happens because of this. Look into it more. It probably does. It's so, so interesting. I, mm. um, I, I just love learning about myself because it helps me understand others better and it makes me feel more connected to people without them even realizing it. I mean, I'm just so much happier because uh, I feel like I can understand what's going on. It makes the world less scary too. Totally. Yeah. Once, I mean, and that's, you know, a lot of what we do with, in therapy is we want to hold and we want to be with, but a lot of the reason why I wrote the book is because you need both. You want to hold and be with these sensations. That's actually what heals heals things. But when you have an understanding of what's going on, it makes it give it a framework for making sense. And it gives you the motivation to move through and heal. So you kind of need the logical left brain to understand what's going on. And you need to be in the felt sense in a way that is healing by being with more of yourself. So you need both. And I'm yeah, that's great that you have done a lot of the self-help um, type stuff with yourself. Well, thank you. It's uh, now it's like so exciting to get to talk to people like you who know the same stuff. So on that note, everyone go buy her book, Anxiously Attached. <laughs> um, is there anything else, Jessica, that you want to plug? You have that's your new book. Yeah, um, I'm excited just... <laughs> to read it, obviously, and I'm excited just to get to know you more. I feel like we need to text after this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, nothing else is anxiously attached, becoming more secure in life and love. And you can get it pretty much anywhere or on Amazon. And I'm really out just trying to get that message out right now. It's um, a, have... it, one of the most important messages I think that people can hear right now. Uh, this is a really, really good message. I'm really proud of you. This is awesome. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for having me on the show, really. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm melting. <laughs> this is cool because we, we're like on the same stuff, you know, like we know the same mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, and I think people who've been through it want to get this stuff out there so people suffer a little less and get a, get more resources. Exactly, because we've we felt that hurt and we uh, know how desperate we didn't want to feel it in that time. Um, mm-hmm. So we do things like, make podcasts where you've talked about it, write books about it. Mm -hmm. It's magical. Mm -hmm. Uh, So check out her book and you have an Instagram and a TikTok. It's at Mm -hmm. Jessica bomb L M H C. Mm -hmm. And what else? Anything else you want to plug anything? No, just thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. You're wonderful. And I'm, I'll be chatting with you soon. We're going to stay in touch. That sounds great. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Jessica, and thank you to all of my listeners. I want to hear from you, so email me at demigoddesspod at gmail.com with any questions, and you may hear your question on the podcast. Follow me, of course, at demi underscore not underscore Lovato on Instagram and at demlia, D-E-M-L-I-A on TikTok. And follow at demigoddesspod on TikTok and Instagram. You can also watch all Demigoddess episodes on our YouTube channel or listen on your favorite podcast platform. See you next week. Bye. Demigoddess is part of the Eve Podcast Network and a Forever Dog production. Executive producer, Tracy Soren. Development executive, Mariah Nicholas. Engineer and editor, Sebastian Portuendo. Theme music, Gabe Lopez. Cover photo by Stephanie Sayers. 
Forever Dog Productions is Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Bowen. <laughs>